before the storm, I think a lot of us think we know who Jesus is. But after the storm, or even in the midst of the storm, that's when you learn a different part of who he really is. There are only certain things you can get to know about God until you've walked through something difficult. And once you have, what you learn is that there are aspects of who he is. There are things of his character and things of his nature. There's things about who he is and, 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 and the kindness and the goodness of who he is that you can only get to know as you walk through a difficult season. What you learn is that it was in your place of desperation that you learned how good and how kind he really is. That it was in your place of raw emotion that you learned how patient he is and how close he is. That he's not really out there and far off and distant, but that he's, he's close to you. He's as close as a whisper. You learned that it was in your place of fear and uncertainty that you, that you really learned how big he actually is and that nothing is too big for him to handle. It's like, then there are things that you can only know about God by going through some things you didn't really want to go through. So hey, we're in uh, week four of a teaching series called God of the Comma. In this series, what we've been doing is just, we've been looking at some pretty amazing stories in the Bible where God stepped in and, and he changed the outcome. How many of y'all know that the Bible is just full of stories like this? Like from cover to cover, the Bible is jam-packed with stories like this, impossible stories, where God steps in and he does what only God can do. He does the impossible. And so we've been looking at these amazing stories where God steps in and he replaces a period with a comma, like, like, like only he could do, Right. And uh, so one of the, one of the focuses that, I, that I've been trying to, to give us in this series is, um, is, is really this idea, you know, that had God not stepped into these stories, they would have ended differently. You know, like, like they're, they're, they're incredible faith builders. You know, you read story after story and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And it builds our faith and it, it, uh, it, 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 it causes us to just be reminded of how big our God is. But, but the reality to these stories is that if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't stepped in, it would have ended differently. Like the only reason why they ended the way they did was because of God. And so, you know, like, like I've mentioned before in weeks prior, had he not stepped into the story of the blind man, like the blind man stays blind, you know? Had he not stepped into the story of the dead man, the dead man, he stays dead. How many of y'all know that when you're staring a dead man in the face, uh, the story is finished, you know? Like, could you imagine a situation where you would be more certain that the final period had been placed at the end of the final sentence. Like, their life is over. You know, death has come for them. Could you imagine a situation that you'd be more certain that, uh, that the story is over, it's, it's complete? Well, the truth is, is that one of the distinguishing aspects of who our God is, one of the things that makes him who he is and separates him from all other gods and all other faiths that are worshipped and practiced across the face of the earth is that our God has power over death. He has power over death. It's, it's one of the very unique things that makes our God who he is. He has power over death. On uh, three separate occasions in the Gospels alone, Jesus raises a dead person back to life. I just tell you that quickly to remind you, in, you know, that he's the God of the comma. Right? He's the God of second chances. He's the God who loves to add new chapters to what seems like an already finished story. He's a God who loves to step in to certain, certain situations and certain stories, and he loves to change the outcome. Like, like, he loves to rewrite the story. He loves to rewrite the ending. That's who he is. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you were desperate for God to step in and change the outcome? You ever had a situation like that? You ever had a time like that in your life? A time where you were certain, like, it, it, was, it was over, like, it wasn't good, like, like, there was no hope, a time where, like, you, you made a bad choice or something, and you're just like, uh, I don't know what to, what to do or how to get out of this. A time where you, you got some bad news, maybe you were sick, maybe you got a diagnosis, maybe you lost your job. You ever had a time like that in your life where you were desperate for God to step in and, and change the outcome? I mean, I think just doing what I do and knowing, you know, what I know, like, I'm pretty confident that in this room, like, there are those of us, if we're being honest with ourselves today, like, there are things going on in our life right now, present situations where we're needing God to step in to change the outcome. So in Psalm 77, if you got your Bibles this morning, Psalm 77, um, there is uh, a, a man who, who writes this psalm who, like many of you, 
is pretty desperate for God to step in. Psalm 77 is written by a man named Asaph. And when you read this psalm, you discover really quickly that Asaph has been given some bad news, and that bad news isn't stopping anytime soon. In fact, he has a, he has a very troubled heart. Like, you read about that in this psalm, and his heart is troubled. And he's beginning to think that God has forgotten about them and that, that God has, has turned his back on his people. And so in like a very raw place, like a place of, of, of great emotion, uh, Asaph begins to ask some pretty tough questions in Psalm 77, verses uh, 7 through 9. Look at, look at what, he, what, he, what he asks. He says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Like you can almost hear the sarcasm, right? Like this unfailing love I've heard about, like clearly it has failed, like it's vanished. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for, for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? You ever heard yourself talk like that? Like, you know, we're family in here, right? You know, like, like if we're just being honest, have you ever heard yourself talk like that? You ever felt like God was silent? Like he was far off and distant? Like he was there for others but not for you? You, you, ever, you ever felt like this? You ever heard yourself talk like that? This is essentially how Asaph is feeling here in this psalm, right? He, his heart is very troubled and he's wondering where God is. He's wondering if God will ever show his favor towards his people again. He's wondering if God will ever answer their prayers again. He's, he's desperate for God to step in, and at this point it seems like God isn't, and he's not sure what to do with that. But in, but in the psalm, what's interesting about it is the further you read, you, you begin to see something pretty amazing start to happen. Asaph's troubled heart, it, it, it begins to remember like he begins to remember back to when God did some pretty amazing things for his people. And even though things are still bad around him and nothing has improved yet, he starts to, to think back and remember back to times in the history of his people when God stepped in and he shifted things, when God stepped in and he, he changed the outcome. And so things are bad in this, in this moment and he's, he's surely upset at God and, 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 and confused by God and, and uh, the silence of God, he's, not, he's, he's confused by that. But, but something changes in him where he starts to remember back to when God did some pretty amazing things. He starts to remember back to when God stepped in to the story of his people and he changed the outcome for them. And so 7 through 9, we see, we see uh, Asaph really struggling here. We, we see him very like frustrated and unsure. And in verse 10, something shifts. He says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. And so what's happening here in this psalm is that, you know, even though things are bad and nothing has changed yet, all of the things going on around Asaph that are causing him to lose sleep more than likely and that are stealing his focus like something significant happens between verse 9 and verse 10. Asaph determines to shift his focus. He determines to shift his focus off of everything going on around him, and he shifts his focus towards the truth of who God really is. And he says, I will remember your miracles a long ago. He determines to shift his focus. And he starts focusing on these miracles that are not recent, they happened a very long time ago. They're not recent miracles, but that doesn't seem to matter to him. He's not, he's not like, like bothered by that even because he's shifting his focus. He's, he's remembering who God really is. And, and I, I think there's something going on here in this psalm where, where I, think, I think Asaph understands that, you know, the longer he allows his emotions to spiral, the more likely he is to get stuck there. And so he's shifting his focus right here in this psalm. Like he's, he's refusing to get stuck there. He's remembering back to who he knows God to be rather than what he sees in the present. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to catch this thought with me. When you're waiting for a comma, instead of focusing on what God hasn't done, start focusing on what he has done. 
Listen to me. When you're waiting for a comma, instead of focusing on what God has not done, start focusing on what he has done. And that's what, that's what Asaph does here in Psalm 77. Instead of focusing on what God hasn't done, he's focusing on what he has done. He's remembering back to all the things that God has done. He remembers the stories in their history. He remembers the commas. He remembers the faithfulness of God to, to step in and change the outcome. He remembers it all. And this, this is what he says in, in verse 13. Look what he says. He says, what God is so great as our God? You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, this is, a, this is a drastic shift from just a few, few sentences prior, right? And what Asaph is essentially doing here is he's saying to God, like, even in your silence, there's none like you. Like, even when you choose to remain silent, even when you don't answer prayer, even when I'm desperate for you to, to do, you know, one of those, those fancy, awesome stories that I read about in my life, like, even when I'm desperate for that and you choose to not, like, there still is none like you. And he's, he's, he's making it very clear that even in his place of desperation, there is none that compare to God. There's none that compare to God. And he remembers in this place of desperation, he says, you're, you're the God who, who performs miracles. You're the God who changes outcomes and replaces periods with commas. That's, that's what Asaph is remembering here in Psalm 77. And then what happens is something very amazing. Like instead of just, instead of just speaking so, so broad about miracles, plural, like yeah, there's some miracles in our story, he starts to speak really about a specific one. A time when God changed the outcome in the history of his people. And in verse 16, this is what he says. He says, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. And so he's speaking about, about this sea. He's speaking about this, these waters that are convulsing, like similar to like, you know, if you think about a person who would be like demonized and convulsing, you know, on the floor or whatever. He's saying the waters saw you and they began to do that very same thing. Like they, 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 were, they were terrified by what they saw. Like they, they understood they were no match up against you, O God. And so what's happening here in verse 16, Asaph is referring to the Red Sea. The sea that God parted so that the children of Israel could cross and escape Pharaoh and his men who were coming after them. Asaph is remembering here in Psalm 77 that there was a time when the Red Sea was afraid of God. That there was a time when it was trying to flee the presence of God out of fear. Like, like it was commanded to do that, and so it did. There was a time when the Red Sea was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen and obey to God. Like, I'm no match for him. He's remembering one of the most significant commas in the history of his people when God split the Red Sea and let his people cross on dry land. This is a big shift from verse 7 all the way to verse 16. We see something really incredible happen in him where he moves away from just focusing on all of the stuff going on around him and all the things he doesn't have answers for and instead he chooses to and determines to shift his focus and starts to focus on the truth of who he knows God to be and he just remembers if we're taking notes this is what he remembers he remembers that our God is the God of miracles that's what he remembers and he begins to focus on this like like like, nothing is too hard for our God. Like, like what, you know, what, what other God is there like him, he begins to, 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 to ask. Like, he, he's realizing, like, he's done it before and he can do it again. Like, there's nothing too, too hard for God. And so the reason why I love this series is because, like, we get to see each week, you know, different stories of where God does the impossible. We're, we're reminded of these stories for the purpose of, like, building our faith. And, and at times where we feel like we're at a dead end or we feel like there is no way through, man, I want your faith to be built. I want you to have faith to see that there's, there's maybe more going on in the situation than what you can see with your eyes. I want you to have spiritual eyes to trust that God is still at, you know, at work and on the move even when you can't see a way through. He's still the God of miracles. And we believe that. We don't believe these stories to be just like, you know, like trivial or Sunday school kind of silly little, you know, kids storybook things. Like we believe that they, they represent the very character and power of who our God is and that what he did then he can do now. And, and so similar to Asaph being able to look into his story and into his history and go, man, I've seen God then and, and, and I, and I want to contend in my own life that I'll see God now. Like that's what we do. 
When you look into your story and you look at like what exists behind you and you see the faithfulness of God to step in and, and, and do amazing things in your past, like it, it's meant to build your faith so that you can go, man, I've seen it then, I want to see it now. I've seen it then, I've got faith to believe that I'm going to see it now. He's the God of miracles. And so the Bible's full of these stories, right? Amazing stories where it looked like there was no way and then God makes a way. Where it looked like a dead end, like the story was over and then God stepped in and he just, he just, he just changed it. Like so many miracle stories in the Bible from cover to cover. Now, the more you become familiar with the Bible, the more you realize that these, these miracles, they come in different like shapes and sizes. They come in different forms. Um, in fact, in the, in the Gospels alone, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels alone, there's about 35 miracles that are recorded in, in those, those Gospels. And so we know that there were an innumerable amount of people that Jesus touched. You know, like, like, like uh, yeah, you can't, you can't count how many people Jesus touched and the lives he impacted. But in the Gospels, we have 35 35 miracles that were recorded. Let me, just, let me just show you these to you so you can see how they come in different shapes and sizes and different forms. Like in the Gospels, there's 17 bodily cures. Okay? People who are sick, they're afflicted, there's something in their body like leprosy or some sort of illness and they're cured. There's six deliverances of demoniacs, so people who are demonized. Like, like the, the evil spirit, the foul spirit is driven out. There's three people raised from the dead in the Gospels. And there are nine miracles over nature. So that's just like, that's just like a small sample size. And, and we know that Jesus did more than just these 35. These are just the ones that we have recorded. In fact, look in John 21 as the Apostle John ends his gospel. Like this is the last verse of the gospel of John. This is what he says. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room enough for the books that would be written. Is that not awesome? So we have 35 recorded miracles in the four Gospels, which are four different perspectives on the life of Jesus from four different authors given to four different audiences, all recording the story of Jesus, and there's some overlap like, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are what are called the, the synoptic Gospels, meaning they're, they're very similar. And so there's a lot of overlap, a lot of similarities. The Gospel of John is different. It's, for, it's kind of written with a different purpose in mind and a different audience in mind. And so, uh, and so John just tells us at the very end as he wraps up his story on Jesus, hey, there's a whole lot more I couldn't fit in here. There's a whole lot more to what Jesus did than, than I had time to write about. Like, like he says, in fact, if, I, if we tried to write about all of it, uh, there's not enough volumes that could be written. It'd fill up the whole earth. And so we know that there's way more to who Jesus was and what he did and the miracles that he accomplished than what we just read about in, in, in the Bible. And so it's, it's unbelievable when you think about that because he's, he's the God of the comma and he's been doing this uh, for thousands and thousands of years, right? Changing stories, stepping into people's lives, doing the impossible. And so today I want to look at one of those miracles that we see in the, in the Gospels. Um, it's actually a story that shows up in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want to just, um, I want to look at it in Mark and Matthew and, uh, and, and, and take a look at that. It's the story when Jesus calms, calms the sea. And I think that just like Asaph was able to look back on the power of God over the Red Sea, I think it's important sometimes to look back and see the power of God over another sea, over the Sea of Galilee. And so in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, this is what it says. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Okay, so you get this picture of Jesus getting into this boat with his disciples, but I've always had the picture of there just being like one boat, but there's, there's, there's several there with him, and they're all crossing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It says, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Man, think about how many times maybe you've had a thought like that. Jesus, don't you even care? Don't you care what I'm going through? 
Don't you, care, don't you care if I drown here? Don't you care? I thought you were faithful. I thought you were trustworthy. Don't you even care? That's what's going on here on this boat, right? They, they're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes out of nowhere. This is a storm they weren't expecting to face. Like, the disciples weren't anticipating this. They were anticipating just, just getting from point A to point B, and they got Jesus with them. Like, they, they, they have no concern. They've done this so many times. They're, they are men from the Sea of Galilee. They, they have fished in the Sea of Galilee, it, it, you know, with their, it, that was their career. They, they know these waters well, and so they, they are crossing the sea like they normally would, and a storm comes out of nowhere, and Jesus is just sleeping in the boat. He's on a cushion, asleep. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but man, there have been times in my life where I have just felt like God was pretty silent. There have been times in my life where I needed God to like show me he was there and I just struggled to find him. I didn't know where he was. And, and it's similar language, I think, to like what the disciples are doing here. They're like going down into the, into the, into the belly of the boat and they're like, hey, hey, don't you even care? Don't you even care if we die? There's, there's a, a real important truth that I have had to build into me over the years. And it's not, it's not one that's come easy. It's one that I have like failed at more than once. It's one that I have struggled to build into me. It's one that has, has actually shaped my relationship with the Lord, though. And it's this idea, don't mistake the patience of God for his absence. Listen to me. Don't mistake the patience of God for his absence. He is patient. He's more patient than you are. He's more patient than I am. And, and I am, when I'm going through something, I have a perspective that's different than his. I have a very limited perspective, but I have a very urgent perspective because all I see is what I see, and, and I, I'm not able to, like, you know, and for most of us, we're not able to, like, be at peace or be calm until that situation is fixed. But that's not, that's not the invitation of Jesus. Jesus invites us into a place where we can be filled with peace that is supernatural, even if the circumstance hasn't changed. Jesus knows that even in the midst of this storm, like, he's not too worried about it. He's just going to go take a nap, you know? And, and one of the great thoughts that I, that I, that I, uh, I read uh, years ago about, about this story was this idea that, that, you know, anytime Jesus is sleeping in a storm, <laughs> it's an invitation from him for you to do the very same thing. Like, he's, 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 he's all right. He's, he's not really too worried about what's going on. And so don't mistake the patience of God for his absence. Just because he is patient, just because it's not quite time yet, just because he has a different route for you to take, or just because, you know, he's not doing it the way you think he should, don't mistake his patience for his absence. He's there. He's there. Some more detail to the story is found in Matthew's gospel. And so, so when you read these stories, like they're in three different places. So what's great about that is sometimes you read it in, in, in Matthew, and then, and then you get an idea of what's going on. And then you read it in Mark, and you get a little more detail. And then you read it in Luke, and you're like, oh, wow, you got a little bit more uh, detail to the story because there's different perspectives given by these different, different writers who were all around Jesus um, and so in Matthew's gospel, it says that he replied to them. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. It says the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this? You notice in the story that before Jesus ever speaks to the storm, he, he first speaks to his disciples. You notice that? The disciples were rebuked before the storm was rebuked. Like this isn't like, this isn't a chastising meant to bring shame upon them. He's, 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 he's holding them to a standard. He's holding them to an expectation that there's a different expectation he had for them for going through a storm or going through uncertainty or walking through something they weren't planning on going through. He has a different expectation for how they should do that. And he's like, he's like, what's going on? Like, how much time have we spent together? Like, you have little faith. And he rebukes them before he even begins to rebuke the storm. Now, to be fair, like, I, I always try to be fair to the disciples because, man, like, try to put yourself in their shoes, you know? And, uh, 
That's why everyone tries to like rip on Peter, and I'm like, man, I, I feel like I am Peter. You know, like I, I, that, I relate more with Peter than I do with Jesus. Like it's just true sometimes, you know? I'm like, man. So the, like to be fair to the disciples, uh, man, they're in a bad place, and, and death seems pretty inevitable unless Jesus does something here. And, you know, as all of us know, and as we've read, like he does. Like Jesus does something pretty amazing. He replaces a period with a comma. He rebukes the wind and the waves. He calms the storm. No one is at risk of dying any longer. Amazing miracle. But as you can imagine, the disciples are stunned. Like they're shocked. Like, they're, like they're, their jaws are dropped. Like they don't know what to do with what they just saw. And they respond to Jesus by saying something pretty amazing. And, and it's this, if you're taking notes, they say, they say these words like, what kind of man is this? Like they're, they're amazed. But more than just being amazed, they're, they're a bit terrified by what they just saw Jesus do. And, and the fear that they have after the storm, uh, in my opinion, it seems to be greater than the fear they maybe had during the storm. They're, they're like, whoa, what kind of man is this? Like we thought we knew. Mark's gospel says, who, uh, Mark's gospel, uh, the quote is, who is this man? So Matthew says, what kind of man is this? Mark says, who is this man? You know, it's more common than you might think for people who make it to the other side of the comma to be stunned by a God who chooses to intervene in their life. There's so many people who I have been able to, to man, pastor alongside and be with through different challenges over the years. And I mean, we could, we could just talk about so many different stories where, where, you know, once they get to the other side of that comma, they're just stunned, they're amazed that God would choose to intervene and step into their life. And they're like, man, what kind of, what kind of God is this? What kind of man is this? Similar to the disciples. They're amazed, but they're terrified. And in their amazement and in their fear, in their curiosity, they ask the essential question that everything comes down to, the question, who is this man? What kind of man is this? Who is this man who can calm the storms going on around me? Who is this man who can calm the storms going on inside of me? Who is this man? The disciples in this story, what you gotta catch is that they are experiencing a new side to Jesus that they've never experienced before. These guys have been around Jesus for quite some time, right? They, they would assume that they know him pretty well. They would assume that they know him better than most people do. But in this story, like they're stunned and they are amazed. Like, like they're stunned because they've never seen him do this before. They've never seen anything quite like this before. And they, they, after all they have seen prior, are still asking that question, what kind of man is this? And so there is a side to Jesus that they have not seen yet that they're experiencing here in this story. I think a lot of people are this way. Man, I think, I think a lot of us are this way. Before the storm, I think a lot of us think we know who Jesus is. But after the storm, or even in the midst of the storm, that's when you learn a different part of who he really is. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this. It's really important today. There are certain parts of God that you can only get to know in a storm. Aspects of who he is that are unknowable without walking through a difficult season. Like, it's true. Like, this is, this is such a truth. Like, like, you can come to church, and you can do, and it's great, and you should, and you can get around other believers, and you can be encouraged in your faith, and all of those things. But listen to me. You, 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 you can only, there are only certain things you can get to know about God until you've walked through something difficult. And once you have, what you learn is that there are aspects of who he is. There are things of his character and things of his nature. There's things about who he is and, 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 and the kindness and the goodness of who he is that you can only get to know as you walk through a difficult season. What you learn is that it was in your place of desperation that you learned how good and how kind he really is. That it was in your place of raw emotion that you learned how patient he is and how close he is. He's not really out there and far off and distant, but that he's, he's close to you. He's as close as a whisper. You learn that it was in your place of fear and uncertainty that you, that you really learned how big he actually is and that nothing is too big for him to handle. It's like, man, there are things that you can only know about God by going through some things you didn't really want to go through. You, you, ever, you ever 
You ever figured that out? That there's aspects to God that you learned only because you went through something you didn't want to go through? The storms we go through are where we really learn a different part of who God is. You know, it, it, it's kind of like this. You go, man, it's like I, I, I always heard about God, you know, but now I know it. I always heard that about God, but now I know it. Now I've experienced it firsthand. Now, you may not have noticed this in the story so far, but there, there's actually three storms going on that I want to highlight quick. There's three storms in this story. Number one, there's, there's a physical storm. There's the physical storm. Like, it's obvious, right? There's a physical storm. The disciples are dealing with actual wind, actual rain, actual lightning and thunder. Uh, these are not metaphoric, okay? These are actual elements that they are, that they are facing. It's real. It's a physical storm. You ever gone through a physical storm? You ever gone through something like this? You ever had an illness, a disease, something financial going on, a broken relationship? You ever had something? Something like that? I think we all have experiences with physical storms and actual events that are hard, like actual things happening in our lives that like, we would prefer to not walk through. But there's some important things that we have to learn in these storms. There's some important things that we have to learn about God in these places. Like this, if you're taking notes, that that which is beyond you is not beyond God. That which is beyond you is not beyond God. Like this is what the disciples end up learning at the end of this story, right? That that which was beyond them was not beyond God. Like it, what was impossible for them to do was not impossible for God to do. I mean, it's just a complete reordering and reframing for them of who they are and who they are not and who God is. And they come face to face with this reality that what is beyond them and that what they can't do in their own strength is not beyond God. We are meant to look at the natural and understand that everything we see in the natural must bow a knee to an unseen God who operates in the supernatural. That's how we are meant to live and operate. That even though it doesn't look good, like, like the, the natural things, they bow a knee to an unseen God. Like he is greater. He's bigger. The problem with physical storms is that they can quickly turn into something else. They can quickly snowball. They have a way of cascading. And as your pastor, uh, it's one of the things that I'm concerned about the most. It, it's, it's something I've noticed in my life, and it's something that I certainly have noticed as a pastor in other people's lives, that, the, that the, the, the physical storm can quickly turn into an emotional storm. You ever, you ever seen that happen? You ever seen that happen in your life? This is where things like fear and excessive worry and loss of patience, being easily angered and irritable, that can severely compound the situation. You remember in the story how the, the storm is raging all around them and the disciples wake Jesus to tell them how bad it is that they're all about to die. <laughs> they're in a bad situation externally, but internally they've become convinced that there is no hope. You see what's going on here? Like it's compounded, like the physical storm has cascaded into now it's a now it's an emotional storm that they're going through. They're convinced that there is no hope. What's happening inside of them is compounding the problem. And so in Mark 4, 38, it says, Jesus was in the storm, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And they are convinced right here that in the middle of the open sea, they are going to die. They are facing a storm that they didn't expect, and as a result, they are forgetting what Jesus had already promised. Remember what Jesus said at the very beginning? What did he say? At the very beginning, he, told, he said, let us go over to the other side. Let us go to the other side. That's what Jesus already said. And they have forgotten what Jesus said. And so where they are right now is they are in the middle. They are, they are in between where they were and where Jesus has promised to take them, and they're filled with all of this doubt. 
They're filled with all of this worry and all of this fear, and they are convinced that everything uh, is going to end right here. They, they, have, they have stopped hanging on to the, to, to, to the word that Jesus gave them that they are going to the other side. See, a lot of people think that hard times build character. You ever heard someone say that? Like, like you're going through something difficult, you're like, well, just, it's just building good character in them. I think it's a completely wrong statement. In fact, I would say it like this, that a hard time won't build character, it will reveal it. You notice that? Like, like the storms we walk through, I think back to like, I think back to like, like the early days of COVID in 2020 and how much that, that event was like the revealer of so many things going on inside of people, you know, like, like all these things that maybe were, were uh, hidden or kept at bay, all of a sudden it's like all surfacing. A hard time doesn't build your character, it reveals it, it shows you what is in there and that's what's happening to the disciples here. Trouble has a way of letting that which is really in us rise to the surface. That's what's happening to the disciples Jesus said, we're going to the other side. He already told them where they were headed. Oftentimes, I would, I, would, I would say that we have to remember that it's not about what's happening to me right now. It's about what he has said. Like, that has to be the thing that anchors us, the thing that, 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 that holds us uh, in, in times of uncertainty, that it's not about the situation I'm in. It's about what he has promised. It's about what he has he has already said. We have to remember what he has already promised, and we have to make sure that the storm does not turn into fear. Oftentimes, if we let those emotions progress in our hearts, I mean, it'll just continue to compound. So it's not just a physical storm, and it's not just an emotional storm, but it eventually can turn into a spiritual storm. Spiritual storms make us consider just giving up hope as we doubt God's love for us and his ability to take us to the other side. Like, I, I, I can just think back to like a handful of moments in my life where they were big enough. They were big enough moments to get me to question like the goodness and the faithfulness of God. To get me to wonder like if he's actually as good as he says he is. You ever had, you ever had times like that? And so what I'm telling you is like, like these things have a way of cascading. They have a way of snowballing where it starts out with like a big event and it's legit and it's, it's real and there's nothing to like, I don't want to minimize that in any way, but like, but like the, what happens is it starts to snowball towards an emotional storm where the storm isn't just external, it's internal now. And, and the longer we let that go on, and similar to like what Asaph was doing, right, in Psalm 77, he knew that, that the longer he allowed his emotions to really spiral the more likely he was to get stuck there. And that's what happens for so many of us. Like we get stuck in that place and all of a sudden like what was an emotional storm or a physical storm is now a spiritual storm and we're starting to question the goodness of God altogether. And if he really is as good as he says he is and is if, he, if he can really take us from where we are to where he said he was, he was gonna take us in the first place. You see, storms tend to reveal the depth of our relationship with God. They do, don't they? So in the storm, that's where you learn some things about God you'd never known before. But that's also where the depth of our relationship with God is revealed. So like how deep have we gone? Like, like have we actually like thrown our whole self onto the, the, uh, you know, the person of Jesus? Have we, have we trusted him with all of who we are? Like have we really built that relationship with him in, 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 uh, in the good times. You know, I remember growing up, um, my mom used to always say this, and, and I know she didn't write it, like I, I'm pretty sure, right? Like, but she, uh, she used to say things like, never doubt in the dark what God revealed to you in the light. You know, like how easy that is to do that, to, 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 to doubt all the things that God has revealed to you in, in, when you're in dark times. And go, man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I, that I believe that anymore. I'm not sure that he really is who he says he he is. It's become all too common to question the goodness of God when something unexpected happens in the space that exists between where we once were and where he promised to take us. And I, and I see this happen like time and time and time again. You're like, man, I'm not, this isn't where, this isn't where I thought you were taking me. And, and, and it's just, it's a struggle. And you're in the middle of, this, of the open sea and there's these storms going on around you and you're going like, I don't know if you're good anymore. And what happened and what began as a physical storm turned into an emotional storm and it has now turned into a spiritual storm and you're being blown and tossed by the sea. 
you're taking notes, the truth is that the promise of God almost always comes with a process. The promise of God almost always comes with a process. Like, we like the promise, but we don't like the process. You ever notice that about, about God? Like, like you, love the pro- you love the promise. Like, yeah, okay, so you're, gonna, you're, you're not going to let me fall flat on my face. Like, you're never going to leave me, never for- going to forsake me. You're going you're gonna, to, you know, reach down and pull me out. Like, I love the promise. I don't like the process. Like, I want to write the process, you know? I want to be the one who kind of can just determine how the process goes. Oftentimes, like, I get the promise, and then I'm going to manhandle the plans. You know, you ever, you ever done something like that? God's process often takes longer than we would like it to take. Isn't that true? God's process often includes pain that we would rather not experience. God's process often is not what we had in mind. We like the promise. We don't always like the process. But listen to me. You know what's good about the process? The process is where the focus is more on what is happening in us than on what is happening around us. That's, that's the purpose of the process. There's like a focus on what is going on inside that, that, that has to happen. It, it, it's a shifting of, our, of, of the focus away from external towards internal. You guys want to go ahead and come on up? So I've got a few more thoughts, and, and we'll be out of here. I think to keep the effects of the physical storm from progressing to a spiritual storm, uh, we have to have a solid anchor. You have to have a solid anchor. Um, in fact, if you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this. It's sort of a big thought. Um, I think that oftentimes the comma can look more like an anchor and less like a miracle. I think that the comma can oftentimes look more like an anchor and less like a miracle. Like, I, I don't know about you, but like, I mean, there, there just have been times where like, I, it, it was a big enough storm like it could have taken me out. It was a big enough storm, it could have altered my life. And there is something about just, just when the storm has stopped and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm still here, I'm still alive. Like there's something, something about an anchor that, that serves as a comma in our life. Like it, you could have been blown and tossed. You could have, you could have died in that, in that storm. It could have taken you out. It could have ruined your life, but because you were anchored, like, like there's more to still be said. There's more to still be written on your life. We usually have a picture in mind of what we're looking for when it comes to a miracle, don't we? But I think that oftentimes the miracle or the comma is nothing more than an anchor. I believe in the God of miracles and we pray for miracles. Like we do this. We've we've seen miracles. We contend for this. Well, you have to have an answer when you live in the tension of like, of things not going the way you expected them to or wanted them to. Oftentimes what can happen to people is they get blown and tossed. Like they weren't anchored. Like they didn't get what they thought they were going to get and they, they, they they just weren't anchored. The miracle oftentimes is that you're still standing. The miracle oftentimes is that you're not dead. (laughs) It's that you've weathered the storm that without that anchor, you might not have made it. Like he is the anchor, like Hebrews 6.19, the author of Hebrews, this is what he says. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We have this hope, it's an anchor for our soul. So like, how do we get through and how do we do all this? Like, yeah, we believe in the God of the comma, but sometimes, sometimes we just need an anchor. Like we need an anchor. We need, we need this hope that we have in Jesus to anchor our soul so that when the storms come that we weren't planning on walking through, like, like we're pretty confident we're going to make it through. Why does your soul need anchoring? Why does your soul need anchoring? if your soul is not prone to wander? Why does your soul need anchoring if your spirit man is not prone to wander? Like, that's, that's who we are. Like, we, we tend to wander, and so we have to be anchored to Jesus. We have to be anchored to him. He's the hope. 
that we have. You can't necessarily control the wind. You can't necessarily control the waves or the storm, but you can make sure that no matter the storm, that your soul and your spirit is anchored to him. Amen? And so here's a couple thoughts as I close. Look at this with me. What if the miracle wasn't the storm Jesus called on the outside, but the storm he called on the inside? Like for sure it's a miracle, right? The storm. But what if, what if the greater miracle in this story isn't so much what he did on the outside, but more so what he did on the inside? Like what if? Is it, I mean, is it possible that there was something so incredibly significant that took place inside of these disciples in that moment that far outweighed what happened on the outside of these disciples with this storm. Sometimes God is wanting to do a deep work inside of us, in our emotions and in our theology even, and give us the ability to stand firm and secure in the middle of a storm. Would you stand? Here's what I've learned over the years. I've learned that fear is a real thing. I've learned that fear completely undermines faith. I've learned that fear has an ability to shrink down the size of my God. And here's what I want you to see. One last thought on the screen. That where the same way fear can flood you, faith can flood you as well. The same way fear can flood you and overtake your emotions and cause you to feel like there's no way, faith can do the same thing. It can flood you as well. And what we have to be willing to do as followers of Jesus is do something very similar to what Asaph did in Psalm 77. We got to remember back. We got to remember back. We got to remember who he is. We got to think back and remember back to the the miracles that he did of long ago, the things that he did in our life, the stories that he has already written in our life, the brushstrokes of God that are uniquely his, that are already on our life. We have to remember back and we have to see the miracles and the plans of God and the things he's done. And we got to stand here in these moments of the storm going on around us and say, like, I, I, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will remember your miracles of long ago. You are the God who performs miracles. And even things, though things haven't shifted around me, you're the God who performs miracles. And watch, watch and see as instead of fear, faith is what floods you. Faith is what increases in your life. And you start to pray in ways you haven't prayed before. You start to believe in ways you haven't believed before. You start to trust in ways you haven't trusted before. And you start to find yourself anchored to Jesus in times where maybe previously you wouldn't have been anchored. In storms that are big enough that in the past they might have taken you out. They might have ended you completely. But now there is an anchoring for your soul that keeps you planted even when things don't go the way that you want them to go. Would you bow your heads? Bow your heads, yeah. Man, if you're here today, you would just say, Pastor Jordan, there's some things going on in my life right now where I'm desperate for God to step in and change the outcome. Can I just see, can I see your hand in here? I mean, every head's bowed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hands. You're just desperate for God to step in. Like you need the God of the comma. Like you need it. You need it. You need him to step in and shift things. You're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, like I need my soul to be anchored. I'm tired of everything I go through, like blowing me around, tossing me from here to there. Like I need an anchoring for my soul. Could I just see your hand in here today? Father, I thank you for every person in the room right now. The, I thank you for the, the vulnerability. I thank you for the honesty. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work in our life right now, revealing things to us possibilities and places where you want to step in and you want to bring change. Lord, I pray for just total surrender in this room, complete and total surrender of our lives. God, forgive us of where we've tried to manhandle things, where we've tried to write the script and make things work out the way we think they should go. But Lord, we give you control. We give you the paintbrush. 
We, we let you have opportunity in this room right now to do the things that only you can do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you start to breathe on these impossible situations? I pray, God, wherever there are signs of, of death, wherever there are signs of, of uh, frustration and, and impossible feelings that people are facing in this place, Holy Spirit, come and blow life into these things. Start to bring hope back into these stories, oh God. Come and do the things that only you can do. I thank you that you're the God of the comma and that when we look at things in the, in, in the natural, that's not the whole story. That's not all that there is. I thank you that you are a God from all throughout history who continues to just change outcome after outcome after outcome. You, you add commas all the time. God, I thank you for the story of my life and the times you have shown up and done the impossible. And Lord, I pray in this room, you continue to repeat it over and over and over again. God, come now, bring faith. May faith rise in this room. I pray for just an extra measure of faith to rise in this place right now where faith has been difficult to find, where we've been operating too much in our own strength and in, and in the natural. God, I pray that faith would increase and faith would rise that there would be people in this room who would walk out of here today just charged up, just with newfound faith, newfound belief, and newfound trust. God, that you're, you're as big as you say you are, that you're the God who performs miracles, that you're the God who rebukes storms, you're the God who, who calms the waters, and calms the wind. And so, Lord, I ask for a supernatural peace to settle in this place right now. I ask for a supernatural peace to settle in this room right now by your Holy Spirit. I pray for a calmness to the waters. I pray for a calmness to every storm. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You're the God of the comma. Who is there like you? In Jesus' name. Amen.